It's August 1981. MTV just started broadcasting as a new cable television channel playing nothing but music videos all day. The Voyager 2 spacecraft reaches its closest point to Saturn. The first editions of the Ultima and Wizardry computer game series were released, starting two very successful computer role-playing game franchises. And IBM released its first personal computer, the IBM 5150. Learn more about this system and its impact on home and business computing on this episode of The History of Personal Computing. History, history, history History of Personal Computing. Hello, and welcome back to another installment of the History of Personal Computing podcast. In the last regular show, many months ago, two systems were covered, the Tandy Radio Shack, TRS-80 Color Computer, and the Sinclair ZX Spectrum. On today's show, we'll be covering just one, and whether you believe it for yourself or not, it may be arguably the single most important personal computer in history, the often imitated but never completely duplicated IBM PC 5150. I'm Jeff Salzman, and I'm your host today. If you're not aware by now, there have been some changes to the History of Personal Computing podcast. After a summer hiatus in 2015, David asked if I would be interested in doing a light version of the show, which focused strictly on eBay auctions for a particular computer system type. Augmented with some basic details about that system as we went over the auctions. I thought, why not? And it's actually becoming quite popular. So what does this mean? It means that for the original format of the podcast, I was considering being the solo host. There was really no intention to completely stop doing shows in the original format, at least until after David and I developed some momentum on the eBay-only shows. Now, the History of Personal Computing podcast will be mixing episodes in the same podcast feed and including both formats. The future show episodes in the original format, this one, will continue to provide more detail about the selected systems but may not include eBay valuation section as they did before. Uh, And the release date for the original episodes are going to slow to approximately one per month. Additionally, there was some discussion about bringing in some additional help for the original format of the show. And someone was stupid. Someone took us up on our request. So let me introduce to you our new co-host, Todd George. How's it going, Jeff? That's going fine. Boy, that's a long intro. Yeah, that one was, that one was yeah. I almost fell asleep, actually. Yeah, well, I heard the snoring, but yeah, <laughs> we can always edit that out. Cool. Anyway, so, uh, I'm sure some people have heard you talking before on other podcasts. Uh, what have you done in the past? We, we see this is your official interview. We're just going to be live on ah. this recording. Not prepped for it. I, I don't. I don't know what to talk about. I don't know any of the answers. That's right. You wore a great tie. I like the one with the computers and the the fifteen forty one drive. Cool. Yeah. It was a. It's an. It's an original. Um, no, I. I uh, Commodore guy from way back. Um, I uh, also uh, co-host with Earl Evans on the uh, Chicken Lips Radio podcast. So, um, if you want my full detailed background, I think I did like a quick intro of myself on episode two of uh, Chicken Lips Radio. So. Here we are doing this one. Worthy podcast to listen to, so I'll let uh, people subscribe to that one to hear additional details. I will warn people, it is a Commodore podcast, so if you have any sort of like leanings toward other computing platforms and can't consider yourself uh, associated with Commodores, 
that that's your that's your warning. Well, Commodores matter. <laughs> anyway, uh, glad to have you on board here, and uh, thank you, sir. Hopefully, we can continue this original format and provide details to the listener and and more variety. You know, the eBay shows, uh, although they were intended to last maybe a half hour, have been averaging about one hour. But there's a lot of discussion that David and I do when we look at these auctions and we just comment on what we see and some things that we don't remember um, or some interesting stuff that, okay, this is what these machines turned into today as opposed to back in their heyday. Whereas this one, this original format, we're going to frame the perspective from back in, in its day and what things were like. So, you know, two different takes on the history um, and we hope everybody listens to both of them and gets some enjoyment out of it. So, uh, this version will go a little slower on the timeline because we're covering, attempting to cover basically one machine at a time and the release rate is, um, less frequent. But first, a little, little word from our sponsor, ourselves. The History of Personal Computing Podcast is your virtual guide in audio to the history and development of arguably the single most important technological advancement of the last 40 years, the personal computer. There is also a companion website that contains the articles for each machine featured in a podcast episode, plus our show notes. We generally discuss systems in a date order by tiers. Tiers are in reference to the three tiers of personal computing, originally the desktop systems, followed by portables, and eventually handheld. But today's systems revolve around a different set of tiers, the laptop, the tablet, and the smartphone. Um, we approach and describe each system like that of a museum tour guide. So let's, let's move on uh, along this tour. Make sure everybody's gathered here. It may be safe to say that until August 1981, there was no well-established standard in personal computing. There was the pre-Trinity S100 hardware bus. And as defined by its usefulness with those who owned S100-based computers, it could have easily been called a standard. But the acquisition of an S100-based computer left many newcomers a bit bewildered and confused as to what would be the best value for their money. And for that matter, where to begin with all the choices and configurations being presented to the consumer. I mean, there's a lot of stuff you could buy. Um, in hindsight, the S100 bus was certainly versatile, but it was also rather short-lived. And in that sense, it's Difficult to argue that the S100 was a well-established standard. Then there was operating system standards as defined by, for example, CPM, which ran on many different architectures, S100 or not. But the software market for CPM systems was a bit of an untraversable jungle. There were plenty of options for software, but little guarantee that you'll find what best suits your needs. There were some compatibilities, but just as many incompatibilities between differing software and hardware vendors especially surrounding the disk formats. Meanwhile, home computer users with off-the-shelf systems were enjoying the features and capabilities of their favorite respective systems, such as the Commodore PET, Atari 800, or TRS-80, which they've conveniently plugged and played so they could play games, do their budgets, write letters, and so much more. But each of these systems lived in its own silo, generally incompatible with the competition from both hardware and software perspectives. So if I had, you know, a Commodore, a friend of mine had Atari, there's no way we could share disks back and forth or tapes back and forth. Um, just became kind of very difficult to, uh, to to collaborate. So looking at the world of business, it was common for businesses to use mainframes or even mini mainframes as a serious approach to data processing. This activity precluded playing games, 
and help maintain the wedge between computers for gaming and computers for business. But a certain manufacturer of a mainframe system was keeping its eye on the growing frenzy of personal computing and how personal computing was slowly creeping into its current territory in the, in the industry of business computing needs. So from what started as a computer hobby, which has eventually started moving into offices, software such as VisiCalc running on an Apple II hinted at a truly justifiable use for personal computers of business. So for over a year, in secret, IBM worked on a computer design that would function reasonably well, not only in the business environment, but also as a home computer for those who can afford it. In August 1981, they introduced the IBM 5150, also known as the IBM PC. IBM, or International Business Machines, was no stranger to computing. Since 1911, they had been successful in providing large-scale tabulating equipment, followed in 1964 by computing solutions for any company who could afford them. They also developed a solid reputation for solutions and support. When it came to technology, IBM kept the details of their systems closely guarded, um, very, very kind of proprietary in, in nature. Uh, when you bought IBM products for your business computing needs, you trusted them in almost every operational aspect. All you needed to do was use it. Upgrades and expansions were strongly and heavily managed by IBM themselves, uh, tying the customers to IBM, you know, not only on the purchase of the system, but then for ongoing support. So, yeah, they were just, IBM. You, yeah. You know, everybody bought from IBM. We mean that in the sense that if you wanted to expand the capabilities of the IBM systems you were using, you were encouraged to go through IBM to do so. There was a net gain of respect for IBM, even though businesses were sort of forcibly led down the upgrade path. But that sort of functional hand-holding can only go so far before consumers and businessmen became wise to their options. When deciding to develop a personal computer, IBM leveraged their reputation and relationship with big business along with a keen observation of fast-moving personal computer market and decided it was time to jump aboard or risk a lost opportunity. IBM struggled with corporate culture and bureaucracy. This made it difficult for them to have the agility to enter the personal computing market. To address this, IBM created subdivisions internally called IBUs, or Independent Business Units, one of which was called the Entry-Level Systems IBU, which took on the task of understanding and potentially entering the personal computer market. Their research indicated that resellers and dealers of other com competing uh, computers uh, wanted to have IBM machines to offer their customers but wanted less restriction from IBM and requested the ability to service and maintain the computers at a reseller level. Yeah, because a lot of that was being done on the S100 systems. Right. And that's what, you know, the computing stores at the time really were interested in that happening. They were like, it hey, was, we, we can do this with all the other vendors. Why can't we do it and sell an IBM product, which is what everybody ultimately wants? Because it made them money. Yeah. It, and it helped. It helped keep the businesses afloat. Uh, anyway, in 1980, IBM even discussed using Atari as an original equipment manufacturer. Oh, that would have been interesting. Yeah, right. Or even a acquiring Atari so they could enter the market quickly and break some of the corporate culture that was uh, feared would hold them back in the personal computer market. And that, yeah, acquiring Atari, boy, it would have been a completely different thing if they'd done that. But Atari was like ready for buy, being bought. Was, did Warner have it at the time? And they were like wondering what they're going to do with this thing. Uh, but anyway, uh, the entry-level systems group, or the IBU, uh, was able to convince management that they could create a machine quickly if allowed to operate outside of the shackles of IBM standard culture. So I guess they shucked those uh, navy blue suits. <laughs> Instead of purchasing Atari, they created a new group of employees nicknamed the Dirty Dozen in order to create a prototype and eventually a full demonstration system based around open standards and non-proprietary software and components within about a year of the group's initial inception. Their project, codenamed Acorn, then underwent extremely fast development 
fueled by a very large budget. See, that always helps. Um, the group itself was renamed Project Chess and eventually expanded to over 150 employees. This new system would also be available in standard retail channels. This retail availability and non-proprietary nature of the Acorn was out of character for IBM. Their timing, strategy, and uncharacteristic approach to the project actually paid off. The IBM PC took the market by surprise and finally delivered a computer that doesn't normally require placement in a secure, sterile environment like your mainframes did at the time. Even though it was initially priced higher than average, other average personal computers, the IBM 5150 made an impression to many who were able to afford the $1,565 price tag. Yikes. And you figure that's probably what, like three grand, maybe a little more now, right? Four, four thousand? Yeah, just about. I, I think yeah. the average, the rule of thumb is double the price. Yeah. Yeah, it's approximately the uh, original exchange rate of the euro to the dollar, right? <laughs> yeah, that's one way to look at it. In an IBM PC advertisement in an issue of PC Magazine from February and March of 1982, uh, and I quote, IBM is proud to announce a product you may have a personal interest in. It's a tool that could soon be on your desk, in your home, or in your child's schoolroom. It can make a surprising difference in the way you work, learn, or otherwise approach the complexities and some of the simple pleasures of living. It's the computer we're making for you. Buyers of the IBM PC, um, um, end quote at this point, buyers of the IBM PC were delivered a large nondescript case that was 20 inches wide, 16 inches deep, and 6 inches high. It contained a single floppy drive. It also included a keyboard and little else. The means of connection to a display device was an option. The built-in display card could connect to a composite monitor or separate IBM branded monitor could be purchased, the latter having better color and clarity. It was common to purchase the IBM monitor to have a completely reliable computing package that gave you better resolution and better quality um, and just kind of all work together. Yeah, yeah, we would try to look at the stuff through a TV, like composite. Well, the NTSC standard would really mess that up. Right, and I think at the time, it was you would have had to go through some sort of RF modulator because um, a lot of the TVs didn't have composite inputs. So that was like an additional hurdle. Unless you spent $1,595 on a TV. <laughs> right, exactly. Or if you, um, some of the VCRs at the time, were VCRs out then? Yeah, Yeah, my parents had one in 1978. They had a top loader. Yeah. And some of those would have had a composite input depending on the, on the model. Um, anyway, like many of the S100 computers before it, there was a need for an operating system. IBM designed their new PC with outsourced components in mind, which was very contrary to their normal practices, but it did offer some more choices for the people who bought the system. IBM outsourced the operating system. At first, they wanted to gather, get the popular CPM operating system written for the Intel CPU. So they approached Gary Kildall's company, Digital Research, directly, the, the creators of CPM, and in a series of bad decisions on Digital Research's part, the deal was actually lost. IBM eventually uh, approached Bill Gates of Microsoft fame, who... Yeah, he was, he was kind of important in that company, right? Yeah, I think so. He'd, he'd claw his way to the top eventually. He was one of the janitors or something, right? Y yes. Yeah. <laughs> so he basically, uh, between IBM and Bill Gates, they, they finagled a useful operating system that would eventually be named PC-DOS. This version of PC-DOS had a lot of similarities to CPM, which actually caused digital research to threaten IBM with legal action. Um, the eventual agreement, uh, they never actually went to court. There was just a, a discussion, basically, between the two companies. Um, and the eventual agreement was that IBM would distribute CPM86 for the IBM PC. And as part of the negotiation of that, there was also worked in a release of liability um, so that the PC-DOS was not, uh, you know, subject to any future legal action from, uh, from wow. digital research, right? I mean, you look... The butterfly effect, You right? look back on that now, and, like, if they had signed even just a basic deal you know, for, for royalties or anything like that. I mean, it, it would it probably would have changed a bit of the computing uh, platform as we know it. Quite a bit. Yeah. 
So unfortunately, the CPM86 operating system, which digital research was making direct money off of as part of this deal, did not prove to be very popular. PC-DOS, um, on the other hand, was very popular and became kind of the de facto standard. Um, PC-DOS included the BIOS source code, favorited by independent developers, which IBM had opened their arms to with this new system. Uh, there was a third operating system available called UCSD P-System, which was a portable operating system that shared some interchangeability with the DEC PDP-11. Um, but it was very expensive and very buggy on the IBM PC platform. Hey, but they tried, right? Yeah, exactly. Because the, the open uh, environment made it easy to do that. And you got to figure at the time, like, there there really was no, you know, it, it, it was maybe similar to the Wild West. I mean, they, they were just trying anything to see what would stick. You know, and, you know, one of the things you're going to try is, well, hey, DEC is having a lot of popularity with PDP-11. Can we kind of harness some of that? So it was actually brilliant if you think about it in the context of time. It's one of those from the, the, from the nice shot department, you know? Yeah, exactly. Nice try department. Yeah. Anyway, uh, in the several years after those humble beginnings with their personal computer division, IBM released two additional computer models. Apparently it was a success. Um, the IBM XT came out uh, two years after the original, and the IBM AT another year later. And we might discuss them in future episodes. Um, IBM rode the wave... Ooh, foreshadowing. Yeah, foreshadowing. Ooh. Uh, <laughs> IBM rode the wave of desktop computing with these and other models, and this allowed them to build a new legacy for IBM and a history of personal computing, which has been recognized by several generations of computer owners. Just ask anybody playing uh, Call of Duty right now. Right. So some of the basic specs of the uh, system, it ran the Intel 8088 processor running at a 4.77 megahertz. You could get it in uh, 16 kilobit, kilobyte, sorry, or 64 kilobyte uh, RAM configurations uh, to start with, depending on, you know, what, what, you know, kind of dollars you wanted to spend. Uh, there were several display options. Um, there was a CGA, which is a, you know, color, stood for color graphics adapter. Um, it offered 16 color text and four color graphics modes, and it could hook up to an NTSC standard monitor. Uh, there was also an MGA, monochrome graphics adapter, which gave you monochrome text and graphics and depended on the screen phosphor for, uh, for the details of that. Um, and higher resolution bitmap graphics uh, were available as well uh, in, in, that, in that configuration. Black and white bitmap. Exactly. Hey, it was graphics. It was still graphics. Yeah. I mean, it, it, Apple stuck to that for how many years? You know, they, they were... Yeah, well, and you can play Star, uh, Space Invaders on that. Yeah. I mean, even, even the original Mac, Macintosh platform, they went back to black and white after color was already a thing, That's which true. was crazy. Good point. Good point. It's ridiculous. Uh, they also offered cassette or floppy-based storage. Uh, one or two floppy drives were the most common configurations on the platform. Um, I don't, if I'm not mistaken, I don't think you saw a lot of cassette stuff for the PC. No, I think people writing their stuff in basic, trying to program it, them would, uh, um, they, they would have the cassette so they could save out their basic programs. Yeah, I know, because I know the cassette platforms were, you know, hugely popular on some of the other personal computing uh, systems at the time. If they didn't have a floppy. Yep. Yeah, if they didn't have a floppy drive. Gotcha. Um, hard drives were available for the platform, but very costly. Um, a lot of money there. And you also required a beefed up power supply to make it uh, compatible with, with a hard drive platform, uh, just because of how much, you know, power those original hard drives, you know, would suck as well. Uh, it had single speaker sound. Um, which would remain the butt of jokes until the third-party sound option became available um, <laughs> because it was just a, a PC beeper, you know, was kind of the, the slang term for it. That's right. That, they dragged that on to like the 90s before yeah. add-on cards were starting to be affordable with those multimedia kits that you would buy. Exactly. I remember getting some, uh, some demo programs. I had a 386 early on, and uh, I remember getting some demo programs that would just, you know, use the speed of the processor to pulse the speaker 
at a certain pattern and you would actually be able to get almost like a digital audio out of it. Um, which at the time was like, wow, I can do that from not needing a separate sound card. And nothing else, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, we couldn't do anything. Like when you ran those demo programs, that was it. Like it, it could do that, and that was about Somebody it. Somebody at the uh, Vintage Computer Festival Midwest last year actually made an IBM XT do some amazing stuff in CGA, I believe. Um, and Actually, I've seen that YouTube video. Yeah. Yeah, they, they had like CGA modes that were like, they created like a demo, you know, one of those yeah. AV demos. Like a whole lot of colors and stuff. I'd actually read that the IBM PC wasn't real popular in the demo scene just because there was so much else out there at the time. And I guess the CGA stuff wasn't around long enough for it to become, you know, for, for anybody to become familiar enough with it to program stuff like that. And it's interesting that these guys are kind of looking back in history and saying, you know what, there wasn't much out for this. I wonder what we could do with it if we really pushed it. Yeah, they can wring more out of it. That's, that's the, full, the, the cool thing about it. Yeah, that, that one demo um, that we're talking about, and I can see if I can dig up a link to it for the, for the show notes. Um, I'm not remembering the name of it, but I think it was like a, they, they had, you know, a lot more colors than were originally capable on the CGA. Um, and, you know, they did some, some really neat stuff that, that hadn't been seen or hasn't been seen before on, on CGA platforms. Um, and uh, it was interesting because it, it also broke a lot of the emulators. Uh, it had to be run on, on real hardware <laughs> um, because of some of the tricks they used. Um, Anyway, so the IBM PC also had built-in Microsoft uh, Extended Basic um, and 8-bit expansion slots. They were based on uh, a a compatibility called the ISA, um, which stood for Industry Standard Architecture. And uh, I said we weren't going to talk about them, but yeah, there there were various models. Um, I want to cover that the original IBM PC was called the 5150. That was its official number. Later, as expansion of speed became an issue, IBM created the IBM XT, known as the 5160 computer, which started with 128K RAM, Ooh, a whole lot, uh, twice as much as my Commodore 64, Ooh, uh-huh. but could be expanded to 256K RAM on board. So, you know, you could risk opening up your $1,000 PC and sticking these chips in to a, so- a slot or a socket without bending the pins, uh, you know, more power to you. Um, but a maximum of 640K RAM could be installed using expansion cards, which, you know, exp- just like uh, on a S100 system, that's how you expanded a lot of stuff. And that should be enough for anybody, right? It should be. It should be <laughs> more than enough for anybody. That janitor said that, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the XT also included a 10 megabyte hard drive, so plenty of elbow room for storage. Uh, the CPU was the same, uh, 8088 running at um, 4.77 megahertz. And in the last class of computers in this series was the IBM AT, known as the 5170. Notice a pattern here. It sported a next-generation Intel 286 CPU running at a whopping 6 megahertz. And the expansion slots were 16 bits wide for faster interfacing. And like we mentioned, we'll cover these a little bit more, you know, in, in future episodes, potentially. Yeah, and, and what, you know, the IBM was actually a very good computer at the time. It was expensive, but it, it really did make its mark, but it had its good and bad things. Why don't you start us off with uh, some of the good stuff? All right. Well, the good IBM PC provided exactly what the business environment was looking for. It was functional, no frills, data-driven computing system backed by a large name in personal computing and mainframe computing. So like the S100 bus in the early days of personal computing, the ISA bus that it had helped define a standard for computing peripherals and expansion. IBM opened these specifications of that bus to all. So you could have third-party devices, um, and that spurred quick acceptance of the IBM PC platform for consumers and business. IBM also pursued an aggressive software marketing strategy based 
uh, upon the release of the, of the platform. Uh, VisiCalc was made available for an extra cost, of course. It wasn't part of the initial package. But you got such nice books. Yes. Um, along with uh, other useful software, such as EasyWriter, which was a word processor. Uh, there was a Pascal compiler. There was a terminal program that would also support IBM's 3270 terminal, terminal emulation um, that would also allow the IBM PC to connect to mainframes uh, as another serial terminal. Um, that was that was big as well in the business you know environment. Why buy the terminal when you could buy the PC and kind of get both things in one box? Or if you're slowly switching over, this gives you a, a, a bridge you know, between working on mainframe and then offloading, you know, functionality to the PC itself. Right. Also allowing, you know, uh, if, especially if you're doing like custom development in-house at that point, there was so much more, you know, option that, that, that gave you as, as a business um, and, you know, having both pieces of that computing platform. Um, it's interesting to this day, we still kind of struggle with, you know, where is the power going to be, you know, and where is that, you know, uh, right now you think about cloud computing and it's like, you've got a really big, powerful mainframe in the sky, you know? That, yeah. And you, we have thin client, uh, what's a thick client? Yep. We have all that stuff. Yeah. Where are we going to off? Yeah. Virtual desktops. You know, it's, um, it's, it's all combinations of that same idea. It's like, we still struggle with, you know, where should the computing power live? You know, um, some of the other stuff that was available for the, for the IBM was, uh, Peachtree accounting, uh, and even text adventure games. Uh, we'll cover some of the bad next. <laughs> well, bad is relative, but. Um, if it comes down to your wallet, a system with one floppy drive, 64K of RAM, and a suitable monitor, we're talking like the CGA monitor, not, not a composite monitor, cost $3,000. You know, that was its price tag at the time. If you want it with um, uh, less, without the monitor, and without a floppy drive, it was the, the introductory price, but $3,000 with only a monochrome monitor configuration that that was quite a bit and then unless you were had if you were independently rich i guess you could buy one as a personal computer <laughs> although you know there was not much software except maybe text adventure games that you can run on it but although it could hook up to a composite monitor and save you money um or tv with a video input which was probably expensive at the time anyway the resolution of the ibm video cards had a slightly higher resolution than that of a television so Detail lines on characters and graphics tended to become uh, blurred on composite. And so if you were buying this to use the graphics to create uh, charts and graphs in VisiCalc, you wanted that clear, crisp uh, IBM um, monochrome monitor to, to display that cleanly because you're just not going to see it through composite very well. It's just going to be fuzzy and you're not going to have the fine text that you may want out of it. So... Yes, businesses probably saw it $3,000 and they can, you know, they can cost it out over a couple of years, mm -hmm. probably more than what it ended up being. They probably said, oh yeah, this will last for five or 10 years. We can just uh, uh, depreciate it over five to 10 years when it probably depreciated in three. Especially because they had such a rapid release schedule of the follow-up machines. Absolutely. It's like, I just bought this XT. Now you're selling me this AT. <laughs> And, you know, of course, all the people that are actually using them, many of the power users were going to want the, you know, the better model the second it came out. Well, the expandability, that, that's what, uh, that helped. And, but, you know, they were, uh, they didn't expect to what, you know, expect what came next, right? Like, uh, clones. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the IBM PC inspired clones, you know, well, the S100 had clones. Mm-hmm. It, so it's kind of history repeating itself. And it's one of those things when you create the open platform and you kind of invite that third party, 
um, you know, into the mix, some of those third parties are going to become, you know, maybe, I don't know if the right word is unscrupulous or whatever, but they're going to be interested in, you know, how can we do this and make it a little better? You figure the processor manufacturers are going to put out reference platforms and reference architectures along with the processors. Hey, this is how you implement it in a circuit. So where is the secret sauce in some of this stuff? You know, and uh, or I, I assume we're going to talk about some of the some of the compact stuff. Oh yeah, in later later episodes because that was such a crucial piece of this discussion. Um, you know, but to, suffice to say, there were also um, references to. We mentioned it earlier in the episode. The the um, you know Gary Kildall with Digital Research and his CPM product looking at the IBM uh, PC DOS and saying, "Hey, this is my stuff." But when he consulted with lawyers, those lawyers were saying, hey, there really have been no, you know, um, no reference um, court cases. There's, there's no landmark uh, court case here. There's nothing that we can kind of work from to discuss what is copyrightable and patentable when it, com- when it comes to software. So that is kind of what led into the ability for people to create PC compatibles. They just had to work around those issues in the areas where patents and copyright uh, were allowed on these systems. Yeah, the bias, I think, was about the only thing right. that was patented, and that's the whole bit about that clean room stuff that yep. was documented 30 years later in a uh, tech-based uh, drama called Halt and Catch Fire. Great great show. It is a great show. I'm waiting for the next season. Yeah, it's a great, <laughs> show. It's a great show if you kind of separate yourself from some of the details and say, you know what, I'm going to watch this because it's just kind of cool. Yeah, they're doing too much, and here we're editorializing a yeah. TV show that came <laughs> yeah. out 30 years later. But yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, they're, they're, they're touching on everything that's happened historically and by putting characters in place and moving it really fast, but that's fine, you know, cause people today have a short attention span. Exactly. I haven't watched some of the, the later episodes of it, and I, but I heard that some of the, some of the later ones, they actually started to over dramatize too, because they were trying to kind of attract new audiences that might not have been their core. Um, you know, and I, I think they, uh, from what I understand, they took kind of a beating on some of the online forums about that too. It's entertainment. Yeah, exactly. But you know, now we have this world of, well, the, the term turned out to be IBM-compatible systems, and it's pretty much synonymous with just about any computer today that either runs Windows or is not made by Apple. Which has to really sting, you know, when IBM realizes, especially looking back on it, that, you know, they kind of lost that industry. They did. That's right. IBM's not even really making yeah. Lexmark Baltimore, right? Or or they use the name Lexmark. I know something changed hands. Uh, yeah, Lenovo and, you know, Lenovo bought Lenovo, some of it. And I think some right. of the rest got split out, you know. But it's like, to this day, we still call them IBM PC compatibles. I, we've kind of dropped the IBM part of it, but PC compatible yep. still is a reference directly to this IBM platform that, you know, it's... it's that's right. It's Lex, become a generic Lexmark term. was a printer. That's, that's right. Well, Lexmark uh, was IBM as well. Oh, so, were they? So, yeah, okay. Yeah, they were very, very closely tied in. Um, you know, I think I think it was a lot of the same, because a lot of the uh, IBM printers that were out there, I think, were manufactured by Lexmark. Well, see, this is why we invited you on this podcast, because uh, <laughs> you know this stuff. <laughs> Hopefully, I'm not just outright wrong. I'm, I'm sure, you know, we'll get some, some emails there, too. Well, we invite the emails. <laughs> uh, Absolutely. Yeah, Dave and I have been wrong a few times, and, you know, we learn this stuff, so it's no big deal. It happens. As long as we tell a good story, that's all that really matters, right? Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) So I just, well, history of personal computing, the halt and catch fire edition. (laughs) Nice. Uh, Mm. Another thing that we've done in the past for... um, Send your hate mail to David (laughs) Grish. Yeah. Let him be blindsided by it. Okay. Uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. (laughs) Not a problem. 
Uh, some of the things that we, we do with these uh, single episodes is uh, I like to discuss emulators because some people just simply can't acquire an original system as much as they want to play around with it. And so, also a lot of these older machines, you know, have some problems, um, they, yeah. you know, especially this late, you know, they've been sitting on a shelf for 30 years or whatever, 30, 30 plus years. And, you know, some people just aren't interested in getting their hands dirty and trying to fix this stuff. You know, it's not like you can just go out and buy one and have it work, you know, guaranteed, you know, from now until eternity, um, you know, and to buy one that's been restored and refurbished is costly. So the cheap and easy way to do that is to go get an emulator and check it out that way. And I like to go to, the, the emulator I like is the mess. I like it for some things, I don't like it for others. I actually like dedicated emulators best because I think whoever writes the dedicated emulator can focus on the intricacies and even some of the, you know, hardware issues and try to recreate known bugs or known issues to make the experience as true as possible. But generally, mess works really well. But beyond that, um, IBM compatibility or PC compatibles is it, just so standardized that you don't emulate the hardware much anymore. You emulate the operating system. So uh, you can use a program called DOSBox and basically run DOS-based applications that, as, as if they were running on an IBM compatible. It's, it's interesting because, I mean, we're still running Intel CPUs to this day, and that initial core you know, uh, x86 compatibility that was in these machines when they were at the inception here um, is still there. And, and one of the biggest changes that made, like you, like you said, you know, the operating system side, um, when Windows became a 64-bit computing platform, they actually dropped a lot of the 16-bit support, which then, you know, hurt your ability to uh, to run some of that, that really old code. Um, and then, like you said, you know, things like DOSBox kind of help you get back into that environment. Um, there's also an issue with speed. A lot of the older computing programs that were out there were, you know, obviously designed for a four megahertz processor. And now when you're running them on a four gigahertz processor, something has to step in and, and kind of help you out with that. Something has to slow it down. Exactly. <laughs> so That's true, because they used hardware timing for a lot of stuff, uh, like, like the system is going to change, right? Right. You know, 4.77 megahertz is faster than a lot of other ones out there, so we don't expect it to go any faster. And that's why they put turbo buttons in on the earlier clones to switch speeds. And uh, yeah. to make what, what you never turn off for things like VisiCalc. Exactly. You just turn it off for games. I remember I, was, I would refuse to turn that button off so much that I would run delay script. Uh, there were little, um, they were called terminate and stay resident programs or TSRs yes. that you could run. And I would run those TSRs just to slow the machine down to play a certain game because I refused to turn my turbo button off. <laughs> you just like seeing the green light that came up. I like to sing 25 instead of 16. That's what I like. Yeah. <laughs> mine, mine had a little LED readout on it. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I remember I remember putting those together. That some of those LED readouts had uh, jumpers that will let you yep. set the segments at light in each position. Exactly. Wow. Make it say 99, you know. It could. Yeah, yeah. it's running 99 megahertz. What's <laughs> FF mean? I don't... <laughs> That's right. 255 megahertz. <laughs> S or is it F, you know, is it F S S L? How many different ones did I see? Uh, anyway, that, that's, that's just how that, that's what IBM started. That mm -hmm. kind of culture. Um, everybody's just trying to sell a PC that runs the same software everybody else wants to run. Uh, no matter how the hardware looks, that's, 
kind of the legacy. You know, when, let's see, what was it? Functionality first, then came speed, then came design and looks. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it just kind of blew up since then. So, you, you know, the Alienware computer is a you know, direct descendant of the IBM PC. Yet it looks weird and has glowing eyes in the, on the case. If you look at some of the gaming PCs, they're almost as big as some of the initial portables were. Hmm. That's true. Um, my son's gaming, well, my gaming PC is just a cheap Dell with a, you know, a well-specced out graphics card. But my son's gaming PC, he, he picked his case. He, you know, um, I, I bought everything else for him for a Christmas gift, but he picked his case. He wanted this nice tall one that he can put color fans in and, you know, and lights and stuff. But still, it's a direct descendant of that PC DOS running, VisiCalc running, uh, boring beige box called the IBM PC. It's true. You know, this episode is actually going to run shorter than some of the eBay ones, and we've been editorializing some stuff. But hey, that's okay. This is a first run in from uh, you know a long break for this format, and I'm I'm sure things will change. So I'm not going to be putting well, we're not going to be putting any eBay stuff in here because, quite frankly, neither one of us looked. Yeah, I didn't research <laughs> any of it. Yeah, no big deal. Um, and as far as listener feedback, well, I don't think. The only one I saw was uh, on Twitter. Um, I was gonna, I was gonna put a note to it here, and I didn't. Well, if you can find it, that's that's great. We can. Yeah, give me one, not a problem. One second. But what I'm trying to remember, see, the last episode that was done in this format was for the uh, TRS-80 computers, and we did get some feedback from that. Um, I know I had made mention of the computer having um, rubber chiclet keyboards and stuff like that, and actually that was a wrong comment. Somebody had clarified that. Uh, for me that it wasn't rubber chiclet and and when i went to open up the box that contained one of mine they were correct it's a plastic chiclet keyboard or it's not rubber and i forget what some of the other issues were i'd have to really dig back in some email um but yeah the one i was thinking of was uh was actually up on twitter jim fullerton was happy that the original format of the podcast is coming back well, I, and I'm glad to hear that too. And, and we, we're getting feedback from the eBay episode one and, and the original format. I guess, <laughs> hope we're not, hope we're not disappointing anybody with this particular episode that would, you know, be expected to be a longer, more drawn out, uh, discussion, you know, holding a magnifying glass to a single system instead of looking at its, you know, its legacy, look to how it started. Mm-hmm. But that's fine. Everybody knows IBM. We're probably not teaching people a lot of stuff with the IBM. One of my views, you know, about this episode specifically is I think we're kind of setting up, you know, for a lot of the future discussion. Like I like I referenced, you know, the, the compact piece is going to be a, a critical part of this um, as time goes on as well. Yeah, when we start filling in with special episodes and stuff, and this is kind of a crude segue, we're going to get close to the end of the show and... um might as well exit out of it soon because that'll explain a little more about the direction of this um, this version, this original version. Okay. Todd, you and I discussed maybe every three weeks, but I'm thinking rule of thumb, it'll probably be like once in each month. Yeah, that's probably about right, um, I would think. Because some, some of these will need to be researched. And, and the next topic we'll be talking about, there's actually a, a known timeline for this that I'm following through. Okay. The next item will be the Grundy New Brain. So awesome. that, that will involve some research because I'm not versed on that. I'm, if I had one, I'd be versed on it. I don't have one. And I'm sure curious to find out about it and then pass on what I learn and pass on what you learn. 
Yeah, actually, I don't know anything about that one either. So it'll be it'll be interesting for both of us. And we'll see what we can find historically about the Grundy New Brain. But that, and then after that, it will be something else. I I have the list somewhere. I just remembered that one being the next one after the uh, IBM PC. It's stored on a Grundy New Brain. Uh, yeah, it is. Format, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, maybe a two-inch disc. I don't know. We'll find out. Yeah, we're not sure. <laughs> I think I have some notes somewhere from uh, from long before when I try to do some uh, pre-research. I just have to find out which zip drive uh, or thumb drive I put that on. Zip drive. Zip drive. That's so 90s. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> That's so nineties. I do have one, but I don't <laughs> think I don't think Windows Ten has drivers for it. Might be on my Jazz disc or my SideQuest <laughs> SideJet disc or something. <laughs> That's it. That'll work. Yeah, or yeah, cartridge-based uh, worm drive. There you go. What other weird formats are out there? Quick tapes? Mm. Yeah. Well, oh, even backup tapes are yeah. becoming weird formats. Like, uh, I have Trav- a, a Travan? Ditto, ditto 2 gig. Actually, I have a Ditto 2 gig tape here that I went to try to test on a uh, external tape drive. I was going to see if I can get it to work on an old um, Compact 386 um, that my son picked up. And when I went to put the tape in, something didn't sound right. I pulled it out, and the rubber rollers were degrading. Mm, right. And that's that's another thing that happens with some of these systems. The, the rubber pinch rollers, mm-hmm. they dissolve on their own. Chemical reaction just turns them into sticky goo. And so it puts sticky goo on this tape, which will clean off with a solvent so, as soon as I get the right solvent that doesn't eat the tape. Uh, but it was... I'm I'm finding that to be... Uh, an issue. Hey, maybe that's a future episode. We can talk about things that happen, you know, bad things that happen to these over time or unexpected bad things that happen to good computers. Exactly. Uh, or, or peripherals or anything. So yeah, that's the, um, and that's what we're living with now. And maybe emulation, maybe I should have talked more about emulation because that's probably what, what all we'll have left. If these plastics and stuff start breaking down on their own and they can't be fixed. So that is the end of the show. Uh, the next show will be the Grundy New Brain. Uh, so, again, we'll, we'll bake a cake. And our website is the same as eBay episode. It's thehistoryofpersonalcomputing.com. Uh, and follow it on both Twitter and Facebook. And please send your feedback to feedback at historyofpersonalcomputing.com. We'll figure out where it's coming from. And please tell someone about the podcast. Write a review on iTunes or spread the word with Facebook, Google+, or Twitter, or cassette tape or you know reel to reel or any of the various at your knitting club yeah or various storage formats that you leave lying around on the drive driveway or on the parking lot because it dropped out of your portfolio yeah i was at a yard sale the other day and i was telling the guy about the show he was looking at me really weird he's like i'm, I'm just trying to sell old sweaters you know i don't understand <laughs> it's just pickled beets yeah i don't <laughs> what does that have to do with yeah, the guy the guy at the, we, we there was a, a great um uh, little like town block party um and they had a bunch of food trucks come out and the guy running the taco truck was looking at me like why are you talking about history personal i, I don't know anything about this he's like do you are you paying with cash yeah that's right hey tell anybody <laughs> they'll remember it a couple years from now when uh, you know we're all you know hollywood uh, podcast producers and passing on this information <laughs> you know hey perhaps you're in a special group i think you already just Discuss that. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell them too. Any any way that you can get it out. You know, flyers from an old aircraft might work too. What was it? Uh, the the chicken drop from uh, or turkey yeah. turkey drop? Oh, the turkey drop from from uh, WKRP. Yeah, 
that yeah, get yeah. Les Nessman to report on it. I don't know that we'd want the podcast name associated with something like that, though. You know, in 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 my town now, there's a uh, hot rod show. Uh, it's a big uh, National Hot Rod Association show going on, and uh, maybe I can run around and put uh, bumper stickers on all those cars. Oh, that'll make them happy. Yeah, just ignore ignore that little "Don't Touch" sign they have on the car. That's yeah, that exactly. Doesn't, that doesn't <laughs> pertain when you're when you're distributing and and preaching the word of History of Personal Commuting podcast. Those those stickers yeah. don't mean you. It means everybody else. Yeah. Well, some of them say "Don't breathe." Yeah. And after looking at what they put into the paint job, I can understand that. But some of those yeah, no kidding. rat rides, well, you know, they're not going to, it's just another sticker to put on the car. <laughs> anyway, and that's it for this episode. So Todd and I want to thank you all for listening. And hopefully this first new run, uh, we're actually trying different uh, recording configurations. So hopefully this is the one that gets published. <laughs> <laughs> Take seven. Yeah, you you got it written down there, right? Yeah, you're tired of the uh, the clapper. Wait, I thought you were writing it down. Oh, I am. Great. Oh, oh great. Uh, let's see how much I can remember. Anyway, thank you, everybody, and uh, have a good day. Yeah.